0: The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series.
1: The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. I mentioned last week that, you know, in a perfect world we might somehow agree on a particular symbol of mindfulness to put on our altar or to hang around our neck or put on our jacket, you know, some medallion, some object, some picture that reminds us of what we find is actually liberating. It's kind of a provocative term, liberation, you know. It seems uh, it pushes some of our buttons because it, well, we feel like we've missed it, you know, like, well, if there's really liberation, you know, and I don't have it, then either I'm no good at this or it's all a big crock, you know, like there isn't anything called liberation. It's a little bit like heaven, you know, where (laughs) it sounds good, but nobody really knows it, you know, we just... kind of an ideal or something idealistic but you know the way the Buddha taught it's not there really isn't any room for um, wishful thinking and the practice is really grounded both in a sense of self-reliance or independence doesn't mean that other people might you know, other people do know more than we do, probably. Certainly in certain areas. And there are things we can learn from them. But what's of real value is when we become independent. So what we know is dependent on what somebody else knows. We have experience, seen it directly for ourselves. And so this particular topic the last couple of weeks, maybe one more week after this, We're looking at the power of mindfulness, and in particular, the liberating power of mindfulness. And what is our experience? Do we, have we had that liberating experience with the moment of mindfulness? I mean, clearly, I can say, I think with great confidence, that all of us have been caught up in in moments of our lives, you know, caught in fear, caught in greed, caught in despair, caught in a sort of numb, frozen, disconnected state of mind. Many, many possibilities of mind states that we've been caught in, caught in the sense of the mind state's there, and there's also an identification taking the mind state personally. And then reacting to it because it's personal. So we hate ourselves because we're this way or that way. Or we hate other people because of this particular state of mind. So that I'm pretty sure we've all experienced. The question is, has has there been moments have there been moments when they're being caught, being tight, tied up in knots in life have there been moments when mindfulness arises in that moment of being caught? And to some degree, there's an experience of liberation. There, things get loose, looser, freed up. What the moment before felt really heavy and hard to bear, all of a sudden isn't so heavy and isn't so hard to bear. And the only thing that's changed is the way the mind is relating, the way the mind is. That's the only, thing. the life situation hasn't changed. You know, all of a sudden we have more money, all of a sudden the person who we thought didn't love us says they do love us. So nothing like that has changed, just the way the mind is relating or holding this moment. That's the only thing that's shifted. So let's just take a few seconds, and maybe you wouldn't be able to think of a few, but think about those moments of being tied in knots, heavy, burdened by life, numb, disconnected, one flavor or another of suffering, of dukkha, of stress, and then mindfulness arising, a sense of clear, Fearless, relaxed presence that sees things as they are, doesn't need things to be different than they are, and that moment or those moments of mindfulness, experienced as transforming, transforming the weight, the dukkha, the heaviness, to the absence, the, the freedom from that weight, that entanglement. So why don't you, just to see, if that's an experience you know, a moment of mindfulness liberating the heart, freeing up the heart, then just raise your hand. How many people have had that experience? So it's kind of a a nice cause for confidence that maybe something seemingly as simple as being open, clear, relaxed, Maybe, like I said, I think last week, maybe this really is the universal solvent in the sense of all of the self centered stress, self centered suffering we whip up for ourselves, that mindfulness has the capacity to loosen, to free it up. And one way to think about it is, you know, in terms of the power of mindfulness, that, that, Whipping up the self centered suffering, the stress being bound up by experience or bound up through our attachment, that it can't hold up when there's mindfulness. This would be another experiment. I mean, this would be great if we could somehow do this, you know, where, okay, this week, you know, we all make a a strong vow. To experiment I mean we could try right now you know we could um, set in motion a situation that leads to attachment identification the mind getting bound up and we could see is it possible to become bound up while maintaining mindfulness if we're really clear and relaxed present is it possible to sort of whip up that self-centered drama entanglement heaviness is it possible to do that while remaining clear and relaxed discerning it's like this and this is just something for reflection for all of us to begin to make that correlation that when life is heavy and uh, seems unworkable and uh, seems appropriate that the body gets tight, the mind gets tight, fixated. Is that correlated with, like, no, not now? Not, I don't want to be mindful now. I've got to, you know, it's. And in moments of mindfulness, periods of time when there's is that more momentum to that simple clear relaxed presence you know is there a kind of immunity from our self-centered dramas in those times at those times so this is uh, i think I don't I'm not I don't consider myself like a serious Zen student but you know different buddhist lineages have different ways of talking about the practice and one of the things that arose in part at least in the zen tradition but this idea that of uh, Nibbana, freedom and samsara, the cycles of suffering they're not really different and uh, we can see this with mindfulness how you know just this understanding that uh, you know it's it's the uh, it's the understanding or lack of understanding that makes life unbearable or no problem. It's not life that's the problem. It's the understanding. And what's interesting is we can see this in moments, especially with some, some practice behind us. We can see how the mind can flip back and forth. And in one moment, we can really feel overwhelmed, feel life is unworkable, this situation, this life situation is no good, and it feels so appropriate to be tight. And in the next moment, same life, same life situation, no problem. And then back, and then flipping back and forth. Now, this is actually, you might say, well, you know, I don't if you were really free you wouldn't have to flip back into the life feels heavy mode. But one of the interesting things that happens as as insight develops is there's less fear of being caught. In the in the beginning, when we start having some of those moments, you know, we all raised our hand, or many of us in the room raised our hands, that we've had those moments where we were caught heart, mind was tight, body got tight maybe, then there was a moment of mindfulness and a transformation, a release of what was bound up. Then when we have those moments initially, we can get tight about those moments. Like, oh yeah, I'm going to be mindful. I've got the answer. And we use mindfulness in a tight way as a sort of a self-centered strategy. Okay, I'll just... You know, I've got this difficult relationship. I'm going to lay some mindfulness on her. (laughs) Or on it, you know. And it's, uh, you know how that is. It's a little bit like when we should do something. You know, that shoulding is also, is a kind of violence. Uh, It can be oppressive. And same with mindfulness. Like we're using it as a strategy of control. And it's like the messiness, the chaos, the... uh, insecurity of life and then we meet it with mindfulness you know and are going to somehow fix it or oppress it or whip it into shape or mindfulness will whip it into shape and it actually it can do that to some degree so that's why we can get caught in this but the the deeper the understanding of what a moment of mindfulness is and uh, the sort of profoundly liberating quality of mindfulness or that simple awareness then there becomes slowly gradually and you know due to the deepening of insight less and less fear about becoming somebody who's bound up you know caught up attached identified it's like uh less fear because even though you know the mind is upset the mind is freaking out there's a sense of pers- a perspective or space and understanding that this is just what it is so we don't have to protect the self because we have a different understanding of the self, a different understanding of the swings. So initially, mindfulness is just something we use as a strategy, you know, and and it's really big these days, you know, in most hospitals now. The University of Minnesota, of course, the Center for Spirituality and Healing is there. Many places to learn mindfulness as a way of managing the very real stresses that come with life. It's a very effective mechanism for managing stress where we can learn it that way but if we do it correctly you know not only will we manage stress but with the deepening of insight we begin to understand the liberation the Buddha pointed to the liberation apparently he experienced and then was able to articulate it isn't just about being a more effective human being It's a radical transformation of what that means, being a human being. And then to the degree that we don't feel like I have to control this thing I call my life. Now that's real liberation, you know. We've all had that experience in different places in our life, you know, where we started out as a beginner and we had to pay a lot of attention, whether it was riding a bike or... Playing an instrument or learning how to have a conversation with another person—you know—at first it was really a challenge to sort of do it. But then there were moments, you know, where it became easier and easier. And then, hopefully, all of us have experienced moments of effortlessness, where whatever it is we're doing, it—we uh, can be completely free in that doing. and and really experience, before we get bored with it. See, then we very quickly become bored with it. But before we become bored with it, so those first moments when we've really mastered that activity, where we're still interested enough to be present, but don't have to control it, we learn this with mindfulness of breathing. Probably some people in the room know this experience, you know. We try so hard to be mindful of breathing, you know, and lot of the times we're working too hard and then the practice is really learning how to back off and then a lot of the time we're not trying hard enough and the practice is to learn how to bring more effort or to sort of show up more completely to the breath but then there are moments when we really get it there's the breath there's the knowing and there's nobody who has to do anything and there's so much freedom it's so beautiful that there's knowing And there's breathing and there's nobody who has to do anything that nobody having to do anything is liberating it's free it's a wonderful experience so we can have it with any art form we can have it with breathing we can have it with any activity where understanding mindfulness really opens this door to not having to be not having to, in a sense, carry the weight, the weight of being somebody. Some of you probably have heard of Ramana Maharshi, a well-known Indian saint from the last century. And uh, he had this wonderful image. He didn't talk too much. Um, And often when he did teach, he would instruct people to inquire, who am I? Sort of taking the mind, the awareness, and in a sense, throwing it back in on itself. Who am I? What is this? But anyway, he had this one simple story that he told where he somebody was sort of sharing their practice with him and asking for advice. And he said something like, well, it's as if you're on a train cruising through the countryside full speed zipping along and there you are in the aisle holding your luggage you can put the luggage down so this is the door that mindfulness reveals at first mindfulness as a practice feels like we're the, like we're lifting holding the luggage like that's what mindfulness is it's a lot of work to bring the attention back to the present moment if you're working with a particular anchor for your attention to connect and sustain the attention to recognize what's in the way to recognize the distractions it can feel like a lot of heavy lifting but the more we practice the more we were realizing that the mindfulness that we're developing um, has an inherent quality to it one of the nicer images I've heard about this From Sharon Salzburg. I'm not sure if she came up with it or somebody, she heard it somewhere else, but she's used it a number of times. Um, But it's about being on a tightrope, you know, and it's obviously a real balancing act there on the tightrope. And if we get greedy, you know, and lunge to know what's happening or to try to get something, we lose our balance and fall. And if we get frightened and back away or strike out, we also lose our balance. And if we become delusional, right, that's the third of the three unwholesome roots. Greediness or craving, all forms of aversion and fear. And then delusion, not seeing clearly. And, you know, if you're on a tightrope and you stop seeing clearly, you're also going to fall off. You forget that you're on a tightrope, well, you're sure to fall off. So... But here's the interesting thing about this image. It's not just how easy it is to fall off. But what Sharon says then, but you immediately land on a tightrope. You're back on the tightrope. Every time we get caught in greed and lose our balance or caught in aversion and lose our balance, caught in denial or distraction, delusion, and lose our balance, there's only one place we can end up, back on a tightrope the next moment right so this is the insight that mindfulness reveals slowly over time so we're not worried about a moment of not being mindful because mindfulness will re-arise in the next moment the next moment is the next moment for mindfulness now it's very easy to misunderstand this well then I don't have to practice you know, because I'll just, you know, I'll practice in the next moment. Like I, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, I think, uh, a good friend of mine, one of my early teachers in the early 80s was uh, uh, a Swami, a monk, that in the uh, yogic tradition, and and uh, he loved to write songs or rewrite the lyrics of rock songs with uh, some of these teachings. And he would say, one of his songs, I forget what the tune was, but it was something like... Uh, you know, give me liberation, but not yet. <laughs> because that's sort of how it is. It's like we sort of like our reactivity. We like the drama. We like the sparks. We like to feel in control. But with the deepening of insight, it's like... So when we, when we like control, then what we like about our spiritual practice is the part of the, the doing part. You know, okay, I'm going to do the Mindfulness. And I'm going to struggle with the forces of distraction, and there we are, kind of in our warrior pose, sort of doing battle with distraction and sleepiness and pain, and, and you know, trying to not be, not to succumb to those daunting forces. But I find the more I practice, one of the real hindrances for me in practice is. Uh, that kind of idea of efforting you know it's so seductive to want to sort of get on my high horse and be mindful or get rid of distraction and instead trusting the sort of natural re-arising of what we could call mindfulness or that simple clear presence because actually when you think about it even intellectually what's in the way of mindfulness i mean what can actually get in the way of mindfulness well thinking we have to do something right so getting on the high horse mostly is in the way i'm talking about mindfulness this way to to try to give us a flavour of how much ease how much release there can be in mindfulness it really is pointing or leading onward to a way of being you know a human being a way of being in this life that we have in this life situation we have but without having to do it you know when you tune into your life situation now it feels burdensome because it feels like I have to be Mark, you know and I have to do it you know I have to give the talk or I have to you know figure out what I'm gonna do with this or deal with this problem I got these messages I have to return this one's gonna be kind of tricky and, and all of that stuff because it feels personal because it feels personal, it has to have weight, right? So everything, by definition, has weight. But as mindfulness becomes the natural refuge of the mind, like in the Thai forest tradition, sometimes you know the three refuges of the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, the Buddha is the one who knows the way things are. That's the Dhamma. The Buddha knows the Dhamma. The one who knows, that sort of simple mindful presence, knows things as they are. And what arises out of that is Sangha, the beautiful qualities of kindness and clarity and gratitude and generosity. So mindfulness, this freedom, this release, this... This sort of deeper understanding of effort what effort is has the flavor the taste of liberation or freedom or effortlessness you could say now because we're you know we're not living at least not fully uh, out of that liberated from that liberated place a lot of our work is not just resting inhabiting that ease but recognizing what's in the way see it's again it's a different different perspective because normally we think i'm going to slog through this swamp on my way to ease on my way to liberation or on my way to heaven but it's a different way to think about it like what's in the way of ease release now like ease release freedom It's already here but what's in the way so we still have a slog we have to remember to see what's in the way and then as we see it we're seeing it with different eyes like whatever we see is in the way there's sort of some semblance of wisdom that's basically whispering in the ear it's not really in the way anyway so as we look at what's in the way of ease we're looking at it with a kind of clarity or innocence where we're not believing it's actually in the way. Because if we really thought it was in the way, we'd want to bring out the heavy guns or the armor or something Something self-centered. Okay, I've got this personal problem. I tend to have a very critical mind, or I'm really defensive. So I need to deal with this before I can be free. That's sort of a wrong view, in a way. On some level, there may be some truth to that, like therapy might be good for us, or you know, talking out some old pain around an interaction we had with another person. It might be really skillful to sit down with that person and kind of work out what happened, and maybe some healing will come out of that. But in terms of mindfulness practice, we're trying to understand that, uh, that the freedom doesn't depend on a different moment so when we look at whatever's arising in this moment it's not like we're going to put off our liberation until that work gets done but it's really about where is the liberation now where's the liberation now so mindfulness what we call mindfulness and you know there's there's both sort of technical meaning of mindfulness, but there's, in this center at least, and generally in the West, mindfulness has sort of become a code word for this path of liberation that the Buddha taught. So this is a mindfulness center. Now in the East, you know, it would be a Dhamma center, both Dhamma or Dharma meaning the teachings of the Buddha, but also what the teachings point to. But in a way, better or worse, mindfulness is sort of taken over a little bit. So, mindfulness as this experience of freedom. And notice it's, it's a very skillful means to ask that question. Like, uh, you know, this life situation is like this. This is what's being known, right? This life situation is being known, unavoidably, the heart or the mind is sensitive right now to this life situation as it is arising for us in this moment. And then the question, you know, what's in the way of freedom? What is in the way of being released? Or I always like this question in meetings, you know, when you're having a meeting with a bunch of people and somebody just has a wherewithal. Now what is the problem we're trying to solve? What is the problem? So what you know how do we know right now that the mind or the heart isn't perfectly at ease what is it about this moment the way it is now for us for each of us what is in the way what's the problem and see that really helps focus the attention so then we look oh this is the problem and then but we're not just looking oh with the belief this is a problem but we're looking at it in a sense with mindfulness so mindfulness isn't based on preconceived ideas expectations any judgments it's taking this what appears to be in the way of happiness in and of itself just as a present moment happening what is this is this really a problem like let me get close to whatever appears to be a problem appears to be in the way. Let me relax. Let may this heart, mind relax. Gonna be interested. In this chapter seven that you know we're following Jack Kornfield's book, The Wise Heart, he uses an acronym that's used quite a bit in teaching mindfulness meditation. It's the word rain, R A I N. And this is a nice if especially um, in the beginning, it's nice to when you do feel caught you know, and so you're in that place, you have some confidence that maybe life doesn't need to be heavy, but right now it is heavy. The mind, heart is caught up in some way. So what's the problem? Oh, this. You know? So you somehow locate in your mind-body experience suffering, or tension, or stress. Oh, this. Okay, And then, because there's a tendency to be seduced, to get attached, identified with that, Tightness and therefore perpetuate it How do you break the cycle Well, if the faith that to just immediately Go to the refuge of that simple Empty presence if that's not available. There's a step you can remember the acronym rain R is to recognize So we're just this is like what I was saying a moment ago where we're getting clear about What is the problem? Or, how do I know this heart isn't fully at ease? Happy, peaceful. In one sutta, uh, that, the way that Andy Olensky translated it, it's a beautiful discourse from the Buddha. He talks about the thorn and the heart. First, he talks about how distraught he was you know, before his deep insight, and seeing how much tension, tightness, suffering there was here in his own mind, heart out there in the world. And uh, he likened it to a fish taken out of the water, flapping about. And if you've seen that, it's a very moving experience to see any animal struggling for its existence. So that's how he described our existence, like a fish out of water, flapping about, desperate. Until, he, and then he goes on, until I discern buried deep, hard to see, a thorn, deep, deep in the heart. Once seen, everything begins to unravel. Not seen, you can go on and on, flopping around like a fish out of water for a long time. So this is that, we're trying to get right to the ouch of the present moment. Sometimes the ouch is very subtle. Sometimes it's very obvious. But it's this heart pain or uneasiness, unsettledness. Now, it might have lots of external causes or things that seem to be the cause. But we're not interested in that surface level, why the mind or heart is uneasy. We're interested in the uneasiness itself, the anxiety, the fear, the loneliness, the, just the, the disturbance in the heart In a sense, itself. That's the recognition, and then the acceptance. Not not immediately believing it has to be other than the way it is. Maybe it's not a problem. This uneasiness, this heaviness, this coldness or numbness. You know, because it will have different flavors in different moments for different people. (coughs) So we're not immediately believing it's a problem that it's something that needs to be acted out in any way that somebody has to do something about the uneasiness this missing this second piece the a and rain is the, the sort of ongoing cause for what the Buddha calls samsara the cycles of suffering the never-ending cycles of suffering because when we feel the subtle pain the subtle uneasiness in the heart we've gone from the surface the uneasiness in the heart it feels so clearly that i should do something about it we always assume that and that assumption takes us down the wrong road because the problem isn't that we're not doing something about the uneasiness the problem is we don't understand the uneasiness we haven't taken the time to let it really reveal itself in that empty space of knowing We just assume it's a personal problem, and we act accordingly, and we perpetuate the problem. So we recognize, we accept it, and then we investigate it. And the investigation, again, can't be self-centered. Oh, I'm going to figure this thing out. It's much more like allowing it to blossom, to bloom in the space of the mind. So investigation is much more about being undefended. Like, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to rest, I'm going to put my head down right in the middle of this thing. Right in the middle of this feeling, this uneasiness, this sort of weight, or this numbness, or this whatever that we're feeling. With great confidence that it will reveal itself. If I don't add anything to the moment, then whatever is known will be it. You know, if I'm constantly adding my point of view, my expectation, my idea of it, then I won't know it. So this is the, some sense of the investigation. And then the N, non-attachment or non-identification. In a way, the investigation ripens into moments of non-identification. Because the only thing in the way of true investigation is attachment like we're attached to the idea that this is dangerous relaxing with this or we're attached to the idea that this is taking too long or we get attached to the the idea that we already know this Oh, I've seen this before I already know this pain I don't really need to be here I I can go you know do something else now because I understand oh this is that real deep sadness okay yeah I've, I've been here but we haven't been in this moment completely and basically things don't arise if we already understand the moment, if we're really aware part of the experience of being completely present is the experience of emptiness it's like uh, things open up and in a sense resolve themselves so When the mindfulness is uh, really pure and continuous, then there aren't any problems. There's the experience of liberation, as I mentioned earlier. (laughs) So it would be nice to hear from people. We'll probably take one more week with this topic, but we have 15 minutes. It would be nice to hear from people. Your own experiences of moments of mindfulness leading to freedom, a sense of release or liberation, your own experience about what gets in the way of mindfulness and how you're in your own way, this R for recognizing, A for acceptance, I for investigation, and N for non-attachment, how that's manifested in your own practice, and of course, any questions you might have. So please say your name if you decide to speak up. Yeah, Shannon. I have a question, actually, about my actual meditation practice. I
2: don't know if that's appropriate, but um, I just uh, Actually, realized recently that when I'm, I'm using that breath anchor, um, I this before, but I'm really just became conscious of it recently that I'm actually visualizing the breath going in
1: and out of,
2: and I think you said that like, like there's a difference between visualizing it and just breathing. And I am feeling like my you know diagram, you know, breath going. Mm-hmm. It's like the more that I think about it, like okay, let's just read, let's just feel, okay, feel, then more kind of comes back, and then I start seeing myself as much, This is what frustration feels like. Um, <laughs> but so I'm, I, you know, like that tightrope image, like I, did, I kind of feel myself stuck. Yeah. And that that moment of, and I know that I'm like fixated on it now, right? Because I just like realized it.
1: So. But that's an insight, isn't it? To to be, I mean, <clears throat> just to to develop an understanding of the difference between physicality and mentality. That's a powerful insight because most human beings are oblivious to the distinction. And so that's a very powerful insight, and you can it, it can be the cause of frustration because it's so humbling in a way that we hadn't seen it, because it's so obvious once we begin to see it, that <laughs> that the touching sensation is different than some sort of conceptual visual perception of what's going on. But we're very dependent on our conceptualization. It creates a sense of safety for the ego. So it's not going to go away easily or quickly, and that's OK. See, th- what you can do is, you um, Cultivate an interest in the physicality without being so concerned about the visual perceptions that are going. Just let them happen in the background. It's really okay, but see if you can really tune into the physicality. And then when the visual part becomes strong, in a loving way, just recognize, oh yeah, that's seen, that is literally seen. Instead of seeing something externally, we're just seeing an in, inner your, in your video, but it's it's. Just seeing. And then you have a moment of mindful. You're being mindful of that mind state. You know, Of seeing the breath. Seeing the mind's image of the breath. So don't see it as wrong. Or even in the way of mindfulness or of being present. It's just the natural process of of you getting clearer about the present moment experience. There is the mentality and there is the physicality. And there are always going to be... Very related, you know, because they're mirroring each other. So it's it's always going to be there to some degree. It's just not being confused by it. That's the important thing: is not to be confused by the two and just to keep noticing the difference and how they're playing off of each other or related to each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Orpan and then Jerry. Um, I've
2: been thinking about not taking things personally and of so did my own experiment um, I'm a teacher so sometimes when I teach and I see people yawning right away I thought oh they don't like me I'm boring they don't like tonight people yawning
1: there were. <laughs> It's not even so much the right track. Uh, It's more like noticing that that thought, that perception did arise of like all of a sudden, when you said tonight, I thought you meant here. (laughs) That's why I made that joke. (laughs) So you taught today, this afternoon? Okay. Yeah, so so when that (laughs) So when you had that perception, you know, that, um, you know, the first perception was, maybe they don't like me. And then being mindful would mean, like, you realize that's suffering. Like, that's probably what happened is, there is the perception, you know, they're seeing, you saw them yawning. And then the perception, you know, the interpretation, they don't like me. And then it's unpleasant, you know, and then maybe some tightening up. And then maybe wisdom was there, understood that maybe they're just sleepy. you know, kind of a more spacious perspective, not just grabbing a hold with attachment, that first interpretation, but maybe being able to recognize another interpretation because the attachment wasn't so strong. Oh, they're human beings. They've all had long days. It's already the afternoon or whatever, whenever it was that you taught. And uh, maybe they're sleepy and then and then maybe in that moment when that perception came up there was a release you know what was a moment ago tight they don't like me now sort of a different way of being in that moment with less tension and maybe a recognition of well, this this is more appropriate like this is skillful now and if in the next moment you had some pride about being skillful, then you'd want to notice that. So it's, the, the key is not like to think, oh, that would be bad to have had those perceptions. But was there, was, it, was mindfulness operating? And if it was operating, then there should be some flavor of liberation. Mindfulness should be delivering. Otherwise, it's not mindfulness. I mean, by definition when mindfulness is present it should be liberating when delusion is present it should be leading to tension and suffering and so we want to we want to sort of equate the two, really equate the practice with liberation it should have the flavor of liberation now sometimes it's liberating to turn toward what is really painful than to be in denial so it may be really painful, but it's more liberating than to run from what's really painful. Thanks for a pun. Jerry, do you have a pun?
0: Um, I'm Jerry. Um, I've noticed that when um, I do have some kind of unpleasant thought, as soon as I turn my, most of the time, as soon as I turn my, tool, it just pretty much disappears almost, almost immediately. Um, but I feel like sometimes I should be attending to those thoughts because they seem to be recurring thoughts, but as soon as I'm mindful, it's, it's like gone. I, don't, it's, I can't really attend to it. If it's, it disappears that fast, does it need to be attended to if it'll disappear that fast? And I'm also wondering if, um, if there's a difference between just attending to some of these things and just waiting for the next thought to sort of replace Unpleasant thought that I'm
1: having. So, you say that last part again?
0: That um, if there's a difference between attending to some of these difficult emotions and thoughts, if there's a difference between attending to those things and just sort of hanging out and waiting for these difficult thoughts to be replaced by something else, mm-hmm. that they inevitably will be.
1: Yeah. Well, it just depends on how you're practicing in that moment. A couple of thoughts about what you said first, though. So you're sitting and you're with the breath and a distraction, some kind of negative mind state arises. And as soon as you, in a sense, put the attention there or sort of are aware of it, then it immediately goes away. Now, it could be two things. It could be that that negative mind state didn't really have much force behind it. It was pretty, you know. It didn't take. Doesn't. Wasn't really coming up in one's experience with a lot of uh, sort of uh, momentum. Or the other thing can be that the uh, way that the mind turns or opens to distraction has a kind of heft. Uh, it's like too parental. And so we don't actually get to see phenomena as they actually are. So one of the things to work on when you're with the breath, so whatever you're doing before the, de- the negative mind state arises, then really purify the mindfulness there. So it's very light, natural. It's sort of moving in the, away from being something I'm doing I'm being with the breath, to something more like a natural, effortless, bright presence. So we're uncovering sort of the natural whole qualities of the mind. And see, in that way then, there actually doesn't even need to be a movement, like from the breath to the negative mind state. Because one of the aspects of that ripening of mindfulness is a kind of inclusivity. There's it's all one thing, the present moment. And so we may be there present with the breath in a real vivid way. But whatever else might be arising in that moment is also right here with that. So I think that's what I would do probably is emphasize, like, really take advantage of that time when we're with the simple objects like the body sitting or the breath or hearing to purify mindfulness, to see how beautiful, how uh, inclusive and bright it can be, using the breath, you know, using the whatever objects were we are we've taken up as a training, uh, and then notice if that affects how we are with those. Because I've noticed that in my own practice, and it's just it's a common thing where uh, the, the mindfulness is infused with a parental energy. And so the kids scatter, you know, when the parent shows up, turns on the light, you know, <laughs> they go hide. <laughs> but, yeah, like cockroaches. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Kevin. <laughs> okay. Yeah, Jenna.
2: If, if you, in, in my own practice, I'm sort of getting to the sort of one of the, it feels like the central pouch. And so I'm, I'm trying to turn to it. Is that how you would sort of work with it? It's something that's
1: like for me, coming up. Well, it can be a really wonderful meditation object because um, even though it can be really subtle, it's like uh, the heart was born to open to it. You know, there's something archetypal and uh, really deeply satisfying, even though it can be really unpleasant. There's something that feels right. About coming to it, and there the problem is uh, kind of wanting to rush the healing work, the opening work, um, and to learn how to tease out the impatience and uh, and the you know and the subtle kinds of stances that the mind will maintain with it. But yeah, I think that's right. It, when when there's something, whatever it might be, because it can also be something really beautiful. It isn't always the deep ouch. Sometimes uh, the meditation object for periods of time can be a really beautiful stillness. Because that, it's just sort of there reverberating. So we sit down, you know, and we compose the body. And then all of a sudden, there's just sort of wonderful, sort of vibrant stillness. And then we should take that up as the object of meditation. We shouldn't go to something gross, like the breath or hearing. We should just let. It be uh, that subtle pain, existential pain, or existential beauty. I guess you could say, you know, something that sort of is profoundly simple and beautiful. Um, generally, the more subtle the meditation object, the better, because what we're, it's really about integration. And so, the mind that knows, if it's knowing a really subtle object, a subtle aspect of Dhamma, the way it is then it will it will kind of uh, draw out like the buddha will become really subtle knowing really subtle dhamma just like you know when it's when the dhamma is gross like we've got rage you know something really gross or kind of sexual urge or some of these sort of real you know base emotions you know then the mindfulness that's going to know it it's going to also be gross like that you know it's going to be more willful like okay I'm I'm riding a wild bronco, and I'm just gonna hang on, and you know, try to try to stay awake to what's going on, what's moving in me. I think we have to leave it here, unless it's just very quick. Okay, maybe next week. Yeah, sure, Mona. In working with or learning about freedom
2: and investigating what that means to me, one day I kind of came up with this. Little phrase that kept coming in my head. So I wrote it down and I have it like plastered in a couple different places around the house. And it's just the only place that freedom lives is in the present moment. And that just helps me remember, you know, things. I'm not going to make a clear decision or anything until I can get in the present moment and then I'll make directions.
1: Thanks for that, Monica. That's beautiful. Let's just take a few seconds. <coughs> we can let go of the words. and Just appreciate being here. together.
0: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.